the natural world is it's here for you. You know, when we evacuated for our wildfire last year that almost took our house, I returned to home. I was again swimming in the river in that same place, waking up at the hillside where I'd been hiking earlier that day. The ground was still hot and I could see that there were green shoots pushing up through the earth. I think that it's important to know like that pleasure and pain can coexist and that destruction and birth are not linear and contiguous. They're always simultaneous. And so what the land said to me in that moment, swimming in the dark, was, I'm here for you. Welcome to the Beyond Listening podcast, brought to you by We Are Open Circle. This is a show for anyone wanting to understand the realities and key principles of organization and human development and change. We bring you into the lives of our remarkable guests so that you can understand the challenges they've faced and the practical lessons they've learned, so you can live better, achieve the success you really want, and adapt to thrive. We're your hosts, Adam Rumack and Miriam Jones. You can join us each week as we work out how to live more purposeful, inspired lives for ourselves, our organizations, and our communities. There was a period of my life where, you know, this is a bit of outing my own shadow. And I've obviously worked through this on my own and with a therapist, but where I was just so poor that during the times that I wouldn't have my daughter, I wouldn't eat. Like there was, there was no food. There was no money for the food. There was no food in my house. And I would save all of my money and I would ride my bike 10 miles each way in and out of town so I didn't have to put gas in my car so that I would have money to put food in the cabinets for my then very small child when she was with me. And that's the same time in my life when I was forced to stay. I was forced to be intimate with the burn land that surrounds me. And I'm not in that place anymore. You know, I, I've resolved that particular struggle in my life. But it was during that time that I discovered where the wealth I'm now experiencing springs from. At those like lowest moments, my car is just like dead in the driveway. It's been totaled for years. <laughs> There's no power steering. You know, I don't know how I'm going to pay for snow plowing this winter, let alone, you know, my child's school fees. Broker than broke. Nobody, nobody fucking there to bail me out. No boyfriend, no family, nothing. And I remember just feeling completely destitute, completely empty. And the only thing that I could do was go running in the burn land close to my house. And when I moved here, I thought it was so ugly. Oh, it's so ugly. Look how black and there's just sticks everywhere. It's not pretty. There's nothing pornographically beautiful that I can point my camera in any direction and not know how to digest this beauty, but produce something beautiful and magical to post on my social media feed. It's just not a place like that. And during those times, you know, one day in particular, I remember taking my run on the local hill and getting into the river that I now regard as sacred and just letting the river hold me. And I had no idea where I was going, but I knew that the work I was doing was the right work for me to be doing, that I wasn't quite at a dead end. If I wanted to, I could have rung the bell and gone back to the city and gotten another fancy six-figure desk job and resolved the immediate problem, the immediate discomfort. But then what would I have sacrificed by way of a relationship with my child? She'd be in daycare all day. I would never see her. I'd be stressed. I'd be rushed. I'd be annoyed with her all the time. I would never have intimacy with place. I would never live close to the earth. My body would decay. My mind would decay. My time would be someone else's. And so in that moment of complete and utter destitution with the river holding me, I still knew like, you have to stay the course. You have to continue. And so I had an extreme amount of privilege still in that moment because I had a choice. And I had the amount of privilege to choose my own poverty. And I really ran it out. But it was in those moments of having absolutely nothing and being able to go absolutely nowhere outside of myself that now I've built upon a foundation of such subtle richness that I feel unshakable. I mean, at that time too, I was also experiencing repeated diagnoses of skin cancer. I had four different kinds of skin cancer in two years over and over and over again. My doctor's three hours away. My car's a piece of shit. Nobody there to drive me to my appointments. You know, I've got these big, 
ugly scars where my melanoma used to be on my legs of all places, on my legs. But there was never a doubt that like, that it was wrong to be on this path of closeness with my child and with this place that challenges me and chagrins me and teases me and just slaps me upside the head with a late March snowstorm that just makes me cry every year. (laughs) There were multiple options. That's the delight of having been an educated, able-bodied white woman. But this was the only choice, really, now that I look back. But it couldn't have been a goal. And if you would have told me 10 years ago what the next 10 years would constitute, I'd, I'd be like, no, thanks. <laughs> no. <laughs> the one thing that I thought we were missing in this was, how did you start your business? I feel like you just answered it in the most raw, authentic, gonna say this word, it's my word, doesn't have to be true to your experience, but poetic. <laughs> like not in the pornographic poetry kind of way, just the rawness of it. Yeah, and I felt like that was the... I don't know if that's the end or the beginning, but thank you for that. Hi, Raven. Welcome to the Beyond Listening podcast. What initiated our reach out to you was an article you wrote for the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Journal on the four gremlins of durability. And I was so kind of impressed with the technical knowledge that you were bringing but it seemed like you were pointing towards something really beyond anything that I'd seen on endurance or outdoor fitness that was really about both psychology and culture and a connection with the natural world through our bodies. So I wonder if you could start out by telling us about what is Magnetic North, your company, what do you do? And then we'll we'll figure out how you got there. Thanks, Adam. I'm, I'm glad to be here, Adam and Miriam. And I feel like with that preamble, you kind of cracked open like, five very different, very delicious beers and set them on the table. (laughs) And we're just going to start sampling from them. So I'll pick one up. Maybe I won't answer your question exactly, but it'll be along the lines. I would say, you know, Mountain Endurance, I could be talking about anything, truly. I could be talking about anything. This is the big spoiler for anybody who wants to sign up for work with me. I'm very technically experienced. Magnetic North has been in business for 10 years. We started out coaching mountain endurance athletes of all types. The nascence was in post-Hell Week barracks on Coronado Island, where a close family member of mine had just gone through buds. And this was 2000, I want to say 2012, maybe a couple months before I started my business. And what I noticed was... All of the men at that time, there were only men candidates for buds going into the SEAL teams. I noticed that all of them were wide-eyed, they were anxious, they were hyperactive, they hadn't been sleeping, they didn't feel hungry, they were sore, they were swollen, they were pretty honestly exhausted. If anybody listening to this podcast is a veteran or special forces operatives all know how week is, I believe it's a 108 straight hours, pretty much awake. And I won't go into great detail about that. But what I took away from that experience was that the autonomic nervous system was something that nobody was talking about at the time. Nobody, even doctors, it certainly wasn't this like pop health, popular guru topic that it is now which has become so diluted, unfortunately. But what what I did for them while they were laying in their racks, just kind of like, oh God, I wish I could eat some pizza, but I'm not hungry, was what I called extreme mind control for athletes. And it was a meta meditation, (laughs) but you got to kind of package things so that people will actually want to consume them. And extreme mind control for athletes was palatable to these men. And I was able to help them to relax a bit. We did some kind of physical movement. We did some breathing exercises. We did some sensory deprivation type stuff. And then we all went out for burritos and everybody was hungry. Everybody was laughing again. Folks' eyes weren't quite so wide and tunnel visioned. They were diffuse. They were noticing things going on around them. They looked like they could engage their peripheral vision again. And so what was happening in my life at that time was I was training to be the first person to run a very challenging 96 mile, 23,000 foot elevation gain run, circumambulating a mountain that was very sacred to me as a, a child. And what I'd been told going into that training was 
your body's going to break down, your period's going to go away, you're going to lose so much weight, your hair will start falling out, you're just, your mental health's going to go down the shitter, you won't be able to sleep. And I didn't experience any of that. I grew an inch and a half at the age of, God, how old was I? 26. My hair got thick and lustrous. My fingernails grew faster than normal. I was like, by all measures, completely thriving, running 120 mile weeks in the mountains by myself. And that's not to mention the spiritual growth I experienced as a result of my commitment to the structure that the pursuit of that goal at that time had given me. So I had an external purpose to kind of focus my admittedly excess energy. So I like to think of mountain endurance, which I've kind of left behind now. Magnetic North now is just equipping folks with durability, taking all of the evidence, all of the experience, all the anecdotes and stories that... I have and my co-coach and employees have developed over the last decade and translating those into more useful things for folks who may not identify as athletes. So mountain endurance is the finger pointing to the moon, not the moon itself. You may know this one, Adam, but I think so many athletes especially get stuck just finger gazing, like the finger, the finger, the finger, the finger, when it's like, no, it, it goes farther. Like keep looking past the thing that you're so obsessed with. And so you know, bringing it back to your original question, like, I could be talking about anything, I could be talking about painting, I could be talking about skincare, I could be talking about mountain endurance. But mountain endurance is where I get to connect, especially with men, I'm really passionate about working with men. And this is where I can do it most readily. Why men? And why Navy SEALs? Why Navy SEAL candidates when you were starting? What was the pull? Well, I had a close family member who was going through buds. I am not a Navy SEAL. I've never been a member of the military. Bless those people who have done that and taken that route. And I've had the pleasure of working with a number of them. But as an alpine climber, you work in small teams where there's a lot of trust. There's an acceptance of a high level of objective hazard. There aren't many athletes out there who can expect themselves to go for 24, 36, 48 hours without stopping. And so when I had the the privilege of meeting these folks in the SEAL teams, what I saw were a lot of similarities between myself and my climbing partners and between them. There's a certain amount of commitment that you have when you're doing something long and hard and high and cold by yourself or in a small team that you just don't have as a triathlete. And that's not to say triathlon is bad. That's just to say it's a completely different beast. I'll note there that the other thing that looks strikingly similar is home birth. You're completely committed. You're dealing with a high level of potential objective hazard. You have to be in complete flow. You have to be in total partnership. You got to trust yourself. You have to trust your preparation. And it's it's an utter ultra endurance event. You You have no control over how long it takes. It could take 12 hours. It could take 60 hours. And you just have to be ready for whatever happens. So yeah, ultra endurance, committed ultra endurance, solo ultra endurance, ultra endurance done on small teams is, has really been my bread and butter for the last 10 years. One of the things that struck me in the article that, that pointed me toward, toward your work was, I would just say more of a feminine version, more of a feminine perspective or a very feminine perspective on what on the outside are very masculine pursuits. And I'm using that like sort of archetypal split very consciously there, knowing that they're not, you know, that's a false dichotomy in a lot of ways, but there's an overemphasis. And you said the dilution of the work on the autonomic nervous system, the dilution of a lot of the sort of, ex- what, did, what was the term you used? Extreme mind control for athletes, <laughs> sort of diluting towards like, here's how I can in five seconds get you to your, you know, highest potential mindset to right. achieve your goal, that sort versus like, it's about being durable in a long-term pursuit, being durable and committed to a long-term pursuit where the very vari- external variables are uncontrollable. Mm-hmm. To me, that yeah. was like, okay. And that's an inner, that's like an inner game is what it sounded like. That's a mystical practice. And I think that, you know, the, The through line for me as an INTJ, as an autistic person is like, I love data. I love evidence. I have a special interest. This is super meta. I have a special interest in neuroscience and I have a background in public health research. So that really marries itself together nicely. I'm able to discover all these pretty interesting novel 
things about the way our brains work and pull them together into actionable ideas for how folks can become more durable, whether that's they want to have a successful VBAC at home or whether that's they want to go on a deployment without coming home with PTSD again. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is a more feminine approach to it because inherently endurance is a female task, not just a feminine task. Our bodies physiologically are predisposed to ultra endurance. Any You and I, Adam, if you were to train exactly like me for two years, I would still completely pants you at a 50 mile race. If culture was removed from the conversation, but our minds limit us, our minds completely limit us. The things that I'm able to do by myself are so much wilder so much greater than what I can do around other people because being socialized as a woman your entire life, you're told you can't, you're not pretty if you do that, you're not a good woman if you do that. If you do that, you're going to get stalked, harassed, catcalled, whatever. And I I just personally got to this point where I was like, fuck all that. I just want to be by myself. That's where I excel. But endurance is an inherently female task. The The male body is predisposed for sprint activity and glycolytic activity. The female body, I mean, obviously we all exist on a continuum. There are genders in between and far beyond male and female. But if we're just breaking it down to basic male-female binary, the female body is the ultimate endurance machine, particularly the postpartum female body in her late 30s and early 40s. I can't wait to turn 40. (laughs) What do you mean by durability? Oh, that's a good question. I would say durability is the ability to capacitate and integrate increasing amounts of stress without breaking while thriving. How's that different from resilience? Resilience is this idea that we're taken down and we bounce back. We're taken down and we bounce back. Durability is like, yes, and yes, and yeah, I can take that too. Bring it on. Like It's actually a pretty masculine posture for me to be in. Like after our conversation today, I'm going to go out bear hunting in a place where I wore my lucky shirt, where I shot a bear last year. And it's going to be that feeling like I know the amount of work that's ahead of me. I'm going to go after the father of the bear that I shot last year. Last year, I took a small bear, about 165 pounds. The father, I believe, is at least 300 pounds. And I'm going to be by myself. And I want it that way. I know if I shoot a bear tonight, I'm going to be working until two or three in the morning, I'm going to be completely exhausted. And you know what? It's not going to break me. But last year, I couldn't have done that. That's durability. I'd so much rather be durable than resilient. Yeah, personally. Me too. Sounds better. I mean, resilience also has an external orientation, I think. Resilience yeah. is responsive. It's like, okay, where's it going to come from next? And I think, you know, women, people of color, queer folks have always had to be resilient and have been praised for being resilient. And I don't want to be resilient. <laughs> It always felt like, yeah, in, in that context, and which is where it seems to has been showing up in the last two years and getting another one of those diluted terms. So maybe I like durability because resilience has become so, it, it's almost felt like you need to be resilient in order for the systems that create the need for resilience to be maintained versus durability. The way you just said it is like, there's almost a sort of like, I can take on more. I can take on more of the system, more of the the environment, whether it's on a bear hunt or, you know, meeting up with oppressive or expired systems of the world, like the ones that you were talking about, the ones that have told you all those things about what it is to be a woman. And you can take those on and move be, move beyond them. It just has a power to it that I, yeah, it's really good to hear what that what that means to you now. I appreciate that. and But within the, okay, let's just split hairs here for a moment. I like words. Yeah. Within the definition of durability is the word stress. And stress, as you and I probably know, is not always good and not always bad. But endurance is the easiest way for us to choose our stress and to introduce high amounts of stress during a time at which we are most physiologically available to expand our capacity to integrate future erratic stressors. So endurance is super empowering in that sense. So like I wake up this morning and my heart rate variability is low. My resting heart rate is high. I'm on the first day of my period. I'm going to be like, man, I might be a professional endurance athlete, but I'm going for a walk and a swim in the river because that's what my body can take today. 
that's what's not going to stress it out. If there's an external system, if there's a sponsor pulling my strings, P.S., corporate sponsorship should just go the way of the dinosaurs. If there's somebody pulling my strings, if there's a competitive event that I've signed up for long in advance and I'm committed to doing something outside myself that's dictating how I spend my time, I'm going to break myself because I don't have a choice of when the stress gets introduced. Whereas if I'm doing that by myself on my own time clock, by the light of the moon, whatever the thing is that's guiding me, I can choose the time when I wake up and I'm just like, the beast has to be let out of the cage today. (laughs) That's how it should feel. And that's how I want all the people that I work with and all the people who read my writing and take that advice and employ it in their lives. That's how I want them to feel is that the events that they end up going out on, the climbs, the skis, the runs, the hunts are inevitable by the time it's time for them to happen, that they can't stop them anymore. All they have to do is stand out of the way and let them free. In my interpretation of everything you've said, which is going to say something about me, is that it's, I have this like idea that it's this movement from being a victim of my environment and not being a victim, like, like feeling a victim and the kind of like working my way out of that to this, like, as you describe the other way, it's like suddenly all this choice has opened up to me and the choice comes from me rather than what's going on in my environment. It doesn't mean that things aren't going on in my environment, but as they happen, I have this kind of like, feels like this inner thing that is like, ah, I have a, I have a, I know I have a choice and I'm going to enact it. And I'm really curious, like wondering about what in your life, like in, in how you grew up and in your experience of your early life, what, if there was something that formed, like they often say, you know, you teach what you need to learn or you teach what you're, you know, what you're learning. And I'm, I'm really curious as to, like, what formed this investigation for you? Like, where, where, where did the threads originate for you? Whether you take my interpretation or not, because it's mine, but, yeah. Well, first of all, I'll say you're, I like your interpretation. That's right. And that as a person existing in a female body, you know, we can take that even more microcosmic and say that most women have been taught to be victims of their own body, to be victims of their own reproductive cycles, even to be victims of menopause, to be victims of their period. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. I coach postmenopausal ultra runners and guess who performs way better than their husbands? Postmenopausal ultra runners, their husbands can't keep up. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Guess what pregnancy is, why it sucks, why it feels so bad. It's natural blood doping. You know, if if we stop conceiving of our own flesh bags as oppressive to us, then our choices really become a lot more dynamic. I can't control the systems outside of me. You know, I can control a discourse. And what I'm having with Magnetic North and with this business is actually a highly political, highly philosophical discourse. It's not so much coaching and training. I don't really care about those things anymore. What it is is changing people's bodies, changing the way that they inhabit their environment so that the world can change. And you can call me Pollyanna all you want, but I see the needle slowly, slowly shifting. But back to your question, I'm actually going to address something that Adam said earlier. Why men? Men, because female experts in our current society are only safe to be experts on female things. I'm an expert on male-dominated things, unequivocally. I taught myself how to bear hunt and successfully did that. Like, you can't take those experiences away from me. They're absolutely undeniable. And so what happens when women start getting put forth as experts on formerly male masculine things? And kudos to backcountry hunters for really elevating the voices of women and queers and people of color like that's great that they do that. And I felt very welcomed to write a piece that was pretty controversial, like pushing a lot of buttons in a humorous way, but pushing a lot of buttons. You know, what what happens when women don't have to wear pink tutus when they go out skiing in order to be included? What happens when women are just taken seriously for their technical aptitudes and for their accomplishments? But Miriam, you know, as a child, the first endurance event I could think of was when I was 14, I swam across the lake that my Scottish ancestors homesteaded in Northwest Montana. 
just woke up one day and it was the beast has to be let out of the cage. I was not an athlete. I grew up dancing ballet pretty seriously until I got too big to dance ballet, too big, too tall. And I swam two miles across this lake without like, I wasn't a swimmer. I wasn't an athlete, but I remember during that experience, my brother followed me in a boat to make sure that I was safe. But I remember everything disappearing except the water. Like even my body was gone and I knew that I was still swimming and I knew that it was really cold, but I also knew that I wasn't cold and I knew that I was going to finish if I just focused deeply enough. That's the same year I started meditating as well. And I think that that was the first time that I felt movement as an embodied contemplative practice. And so that's pretty young, but, you know, I didn't grow up athletic. I grew up, you know, the story I was told by my parents was if I could be a brain on a stick that I would be like, I just, I was always told that I was slow. I couldn't catch, kick or run. And I believed it. I mean, as you do when you're a kid told disempowering things, but I think that's the moment when I started shedding it. It's fascinating. Adam and I were talking last week about experience of the like our experience of the mystical and, Mm -hmm. you know, the different ways people experience the mystical. And I just hear that. I know Adam mentioned before, but I just really hear that as such a central part of like this was your experience of something that was, I want to use the word oneness because that's what it sounded like, like a oneness. And in what way did that experience impact or not your choices? And I'm not so much talking about sport now or adventures, but the choices to do things or not, or how you kind of traveled through what you traveled through. Yeah, well, first, I'll go way back, reach way back into the archives. My foundational spiritual practice is lucid dreaming and astral projection. And so when I was six, my family took me to a like a psychologist, I was having terrible nightmares. And the psychologist essentially equipped me with the tools I needed to lucid dream. And so since I was six, I grew up thinking that it was really normal to go into your dreams and essentially do shadow work for yourself in an astral body. And then, you know, picked up Tibetan Buddhism, and all of those practices, my brain loved the structure of that Tibetan Buddhists are all about their rituals and their frameworks. And I'll halfway answer your question by describing a concept common in Tibetan Buddhism, and my my Buddhist teachers are going to correct me here. I'm not a meditation teacher. I'm not a, a nun, so please forgive me. But there are three types of sleep, and if we think of our our consciousness as a continuum, waking is no different than sleeping, and we always have the option to be either asleep or conscious, kind of asleep at the wheel but still driving, or conscious in the waking or the sleeping state. Most people are just sleeping all the time. They're running unconscious scripts. They're letting their ego when they're awake drive them. They're letting their unconscious mind when they're asleep drive them. But we always have a choice to wake up. It's not linear. The first type of sleep is the sleep of ignorance. This is the sleep that gives our bodies enough rest so that we can wake up the next morning and run on that dopamine-fueled hamster wheel, actually accomplishing nothing. But like we accomplish the goals of capitalist patriarchy that's all we can do. And we think that's living. And then the second type of sleep is the sleep of samsara. So the sleep of ignorance, the mind and body have forgotten themselves. We've forgotten our trauma. We've forgotten our past. We've forgotten that we even have a body. We think a lot about, you know, people's heads not being attached to their bodies, you know, all the time we spend on screens. Sleep of ignorance. Sleep of samsara, the mind and body come crashing back together. And this can be really unpleasant because we suddenly become aware of our suffering, which is an inherent quality of being incarnated as a human. But in the sleep of samsara, we start being able to access some sort of lucidity in both waking and sleeping states. We can start to astrally project. And the mind and body are together. We've remembered ourselves back into the body. And so that's what I think endurance does in the waking consciousness is invites people back into their bodies. And the invitation is pain. I feel something. And then we have the sleep of clear light In the sleep of clear light, the mind and the body have come so close together, have realized themselves as one thing to such an extent that they dissolve. And so 
that's where we're astrally projecting. And personally, I take the form of only my hands, and then I become the northern lights, which is such a cool feeling. And the sleep of clear light, you know, doesn't happen all the time, but these are the type of dreams that give us a personal cosmology, that give us kind of that magnetic north, that heading to move toward over a long, long, long span of time. And, you know, personally, I'm an experienced lucid dreamer. Obviously, I've been doing it for 30 years, and I teach people how to do this. I think that that's kind of the final frontier of endurance, really. Because there's really, there's such interesting shit out there that I'm learning, you know, both in the evidence and in the practice of astral projection around our ability to locate ourselves absolutely in space, our ability to project our consciousness to places our bodies have never physically been. This is all supported by evidence and it's all in courses that I've created on the Durability School. Yeah. When I um, listened to your, one of your courses, I think it was the endurance course, you said something which was which I was like, that is a freaking revelation right there for someone in a course in, in 2022. And there's probably not ex- anything that you would expect, but there was a lot of revelations. But, but when you said in there, there's a lot of science in here. And if you don't understand the science, go and take a community college course on physiology or basic science to be able to understand and then interpret the data that we're receiving on so many health aspects, which to me was like, so empowering and so subversive mm-hmm. of, of the the general sort of discourse, public discourse right now on on science. Can you just talk more about how you're overlaying, like what's coming first for you, the science or the experience, how you're studying your own experiences and those experiments that you're doing that you're then sharing with the world? What's your process? How are you integrating those parts of your teaching and, and learning? Really good question. That's part of the preamble to all my courses. You were going through the zones course, I think, and I'd love to hear from you. Zones, I mean, yeah, zones, we, can, we can just expose the the course live on this podcast if you want, but that's part of the preamble to all of my courses because they are science heavy. I realize that what I'm saying in the coaching world or in the wellness world is pushing some buttons and I don't want people to just take my word for it. You know, I'm charismatic. I'm pretty. I get it. I could build a cult of personality around my work. That is so flimsy and that's so ego-oriented and self-indulgent. That's not going to persist when I'm gone. What's going to persist is something that is objectively verifiable and yet can only be believed once it's embodied by experiencing it yourself. And so I think that to challenge someone like, oh, you don't agree with me? Why don't you teach yourself to look at the evidence that I've found and curated for you in this course and try to say that I'm wrong? If I'm wrong, I want to hear an evidence-based argument as to why you're rejecting what I've put forward. You know, for all the criticism and trolling and cancel culture crap that I've endured over the years, nobody ever once has brought to me an evidence-based rejection of something revolutionary that I've proposed in my work. And I think that says something that's really interesting. You know, people are getting triggered and they're reacting emotionally. And what I want to do is I want I want to get people to react emotionally to what I'm saying, to say, oh, that's not what I learned. That's not what I heard in school. There are a lot of doctors in my community. There are a lot of nurses. There are a lot of mental health practitioners. There are a lot of other coaches who are taking my courses. And I just want to challenge them. Like nurses in our country, for example, even nurse practitioners aren't required to take a cadaver anatomy program. Like I took just because I thought it would be helpful when I first started my business. Before opening my business, I was like, I'm going to take an anatomy and physiology series and culminate in a cadaver lab. That made sense to me. But like healthcare professionals who are in charge of our bodies, who we, to whom we abdicate the authority over our own health and wellness, haven't even seen the inside of a human body. Many of them. What a shame. That doesn't make any sense. So I want to give people essentially like, I want to hand the scalpel to somebody and say, here, you look. You don't think you have an omentum in your gut? Why don't you check? You don't think your psoas is sensory perceptive tissue? Why don't you poke at it? (laughs) Get in there. Get messy. But I think that I have an unusual aptitude for making distal logical connections between things and being able to read peer-reviewed articles and not get super confused. Sometimes I have to run them by like doctor or scientist friends to be like, 
is what I think happening actually happening here? Because it does get a bit heavy, but... What I like to do is use that aptitude to present people with this charcuterie platter of delicious options. So my degrees in political psychology and, you know, where I position myself is as a radical, right? So we have the traditionally conservative, not the conservative party, a conservative reaction to stasis is to maintain status quo, conservative, liberal reaction to the stasis is to reject the stasis and go in the opposite direction. You say yes, I say no. You say black, I say white. They're both a reaction to the status quo. What a radical reaction is to the status quo is just to say, have you ever thought about it this way? (laughs) If you ask misogynistic questions, you're going to get misogynistic answers. But if you start asking different questions altogether, you can blow apart constructs faster then you can even do a Google search. So I would say like when I feel stuck in my work and sometimes it happens, all I need to do is take some mushrooms and sit down at my computer one evening and just start diving into PubMed. I usually start with, you know, I I fangirl a couple of scientists, a couple of like research doctors, and I follow them on my browser and I just start reading. What have they been up to? What have they been publishing lately? And sometimes that'll spawn a new course or a new idea. And then I go sleep under my trees and try to receive an answer about how to organize the material. And sometimes I get an answer. Sometimes I just get a bunch of bug bites and that's how it works. But sometimes things arise in my body, like my whole pregnant athlete work. I'm so grateful to myself for having the audacity and the knowing and the ability to just tune out everyone else's stupid opinions. When I first got surprised pregnant with my daughter, nobody said, hey, you should run your 24th and 25th ultra while you're pregnant. Nobody said, you should send your hardest rock project ever while you're pregnant. Nobody said, hey, you should teach yourself how to grouse hunt and go to the shooting range with your 12 gauge while you're pregnant. Nobody said those things. Nobody gave me permission, but I took the opportunity to play with my body, to play with the stupid constructs of what everybody said was normal or to be expected. And just kind of see that like that wall is not so hard. So sometimes it, you know, new material arises from my experience. And with the pregnant athlete stuff, I was absolutely unpumpable. I could not get pumped climbing. There was this climb that I was trying to send out a couple miles from home. It was 13 bolts long and hard for me, a sport climb. I'm not much of a sport climber. And for months prior to getting pregnant, I had climbed it, you know, 40, 50 times. And I would always whip at the same part. I would get so pumped. My my hands just wouldn't work anymore. And I'd peel off the climb. It wasn't a mental thing. It was purely physical. And then in my first trimester of pregnancy, all of a sudden, I was just like, I can hang on. I can just hang on forever. I'm not getting pumped. Like, why is that? Why am I able to finally send this project? And as I clip the bolts, feeling so present and so not pumped that I don't even feel fatigued. Like, why is that happening? I'm curious about that. And doing a bunch of, a bunch of research as a result of you know my lived experience, because I knew that it was a, a normative outlier but a species norm and that perhaps I could help us remember what we're capable of. So culturally normative, but not biologically normative. Is that? Yeah. There's no shooting here either. Like, you know, if if you don't want to have an athletic pregnancy, you, you, you know, you want to have a languid, voluptuous, slow pregnancy. That's great. That is absolutely your choice, but it's your choice. Does that make sense? Like you can do that. And I, I will not cast any judgment your way. That's wonderful. That's your decision. But that exists in an array of options. And perhaps the other end of the spectrum is me tomahawking down a couloir (laughs) six months pregnant. And that's my choice. And that's perfectly healthy and has resulted in a vigorously intelligent, hilarious child who's routinely two years ahead on all of her development milestones. (laughs) Born 12 hours before her due date. Thank you very much. (laughs) (laughs) I have another question. You talked about privilege, and I know that this is, I feel like I have no right to to question privilege, just to be honest with you, because I fit all the categories of a person with privilege. But I've had experiences, and I I think Miriam, you, you, you know, through our families of very different cultures that would not tick those boxes of privilege but who experience, who have different 
sort of built-in mechanisms for resilience or for durability. Mm-hmm. Both of those, I think, the way that we've been talking about it. And when I examine it and kind of what what I've experienced there is that intact family systems, connection with place, community, less of a focus on individual pursuits, individual whether it's career, primarily career and money and accumulation of material things that tends to dominate our culture. The sense of, of durability and resilience, both of those things, is a privilege that I, in my privilege, wish I could have. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like part of what we're talking about here is like, what do we do with what we've got in our culture, which has become so hyper individualistic? It's interesting. You know, this is a paradoxical answer, and I realize it. Yeah. I'm I'm a super yeah. introvert. I'm autistic. I have low social needs, essentially. Like, I'm not I'm not socially anxious. I'm socially adept. I'm fine talking with people. But for me, in part, to actualize these ideas, to start this business, to accomplish anything worthwhile, including the home birth of my daughter or anything I've done hunting or running, I've needed to be creatively isolated. I've needed to have no input from other people because people haven't been where I'm going. And so why would I ask them, you know, this is kind of a common saying, why would I ask them for directions? And so I want to push back on your idea that we need community. You know, once we have collectively made a shift and a change, community becomes relevant again. But Hmm. when we're first beginning to travel this path, that's different than our families of origin. That's different than what the peers around us are are immersed in, we can't look to them for company. We have to look somewhere else. And the other common like pop psychology thing right now that I take great issue with is attachment theory. That attachment theory presumes that we can only gain attachment. We can only rewire our abilities for love in the context of human relationship. And I don't think that's true. For me personally, I have rewired my ability to love from a pretty you know, bleak childhood, honestly, not not great childhood, to one where I know myself to be capable of perfect love. How did I get there? It wasn't through other people. It was through a deep, transformative, place-oriented relationship with the natural world. And let me tell you, I have been dragged to my destiny kicking and screaming repeatedly. I didn't want to stay where I live. I didn't want to be here. You know, I got surprised pregnant while I was living in the back of my truck, a mile up a drainage across the river from home. And I loathe this place in many ways. It's the half circle north of home that has held me, you know, through through poverty, through uncertainty, through building this business when everyone said I shouldn't, through not really knowing what was next and seeing no light at the end of the tunnel, frankly, being a single mom without a trust fund or a family to bail me out, being completely and utterly lost, completely lost the thread for, for years at a time. What helped me get found wasn't people. That doesn't mean that I exist in isolation. That doesn't mean that I conceive of myself as being alone. When people, you know, remark, oh, you do all these things alone. It's like, I mean, yeah, ish. Like I'm out there talking to the birds. I'm out there in great company. These are the neighbors I want to have. I want to have the cougar neighbors. I don't, you know, I don't really want to associate with the people so much. But after kind of building that new world for myself and doing a lot of really painful work that I frankly would have been too lazy to do had I had the choice to do it. Now I find myself coming into community with like-minded people or with people who challenge me to think differently, but who are compassionate and curious and present with the process of that. I'm really struck by that being connected to Magnetic North, like in that act of finding animals, place, people, whatever it is that allows that sense to kind of grow. And I was thinking, I've been thinking the whole time about directionality, you know, and how we find our directionality and that like it's so diametrically different than looking for approval or validation of directionality. Is this the right way because someone says it to still kind of being drawn to those things which confirm a directionality, you know, like that pull, like, you know, (laughs) that pull that we have. That's kind of, he talks so much about having a goal in an athletic 
race and, you know, it's a totally different way of finding our way through things and also nurturing how we find our way through things, like letting ourselves be pulled to the things that allow us to feel that magnetic north, that allow us to be, that, that like will pull us in the direction that we can, that is, it feels almost like an alignment. Like that's, at least that's how I've experienced it in my life. Like, ah, oh, I'm, I'm being pulled now and somehow it's like I'm touching my stomach. It's like I can, I can feel like I'm being pulled from the right place. That's what it feels like mm-hmm. rather than kind of being pushed and shoved. And, you know, in, within everything you talk about in terms of competition and, and, you know, all of those things and even the nervous system, like thinking about how you discuss the nervous system, even listening to your, you talk about the nervous system, I'm starting to understand it in a different way where it's like the things that get up in the way of actually feeling that or sensing that or allowing ourselves to be pulled by that magnetic north, what I'm calling a magnetic north. I don't know if that's correct to your understanding, but that's as I'm listening, I kind of, that's what's coming to me. Well, I think there's a point at which a goal stops serving the progress of the athlete. And I love catching people at that point. Sometimes people will sign up for work with me and I take fewer and fewer individual coaching clients myself now. But when people sign up with me and they're like, I don't really know why I'm signing up with you. Like, it's probably not your thing. I don't really have a goal. I'm like, yeah, that's that's my thing. That's the point right there. Like you have all this physical background. You know, you've been a, you were like a comp climber as a kid and now you've lost the thread on that. You forgot your ego shell. <laughs> like, okay, let's let's start there. That's where the work gets truly exciting. So for me, you know, 10 years ago, I needed that goal as an outside excuse to care for myself. I was never taught to care for myself in the ways that I ought to and in the ways that can bring forth my greatest spiritual and creative gifts. And that goal taught me how to care for myself. And so I'm grateful to it. But at this point in my life, I keep existing as a more and more ambiguous and malleable version of myself that is less easily defined. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes me itchy. But what it is, is a, a kind of seeing that I don't need my eyes for. Sometimes when I'm out hunting, like last elk season, for whatever reason, elk, I mean, anybody who's ever hunted elk, you're walking fast and far and <laughs> they're tricky. But whenever I'm out, looking for them, I always find myself closing my eyes and walking and I'm kind of guided from some other place. Miriam, like you're saying your gut, I think for me, it's somewhere like maybe my chest or my solar plexus, I'm guided in different ways. And all of a sudden, boom, there are some tracks. And so for me, by forgetting the point, I stumble upon the gifts. And when I don't have a plan, and when I stop using my significant masculine energy. I mean, I'm very feminine in appearance and I'm definitely she, her, hers, but there's a lot of masculine driving forceful. I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to stake my claim. Like when I let go of that, I walk through the world receiving gifts and I walk through the world receiving gifts from all species. The other day, a whole wing of a mountain bluebird and then my fourth interaction ever at close range with a goshawk on a run I didn't want to go on. But I was told, I was compelled by some place in my body to go to this very specific place. And I've learned when I get that impulse of like, get up, bitch, you're going hunting. Like you're, yeah, you're going hunting. It doesn't matter how inconvenient it is or how lazy you feel or how cozy your silk onesie might be. Like, you know, get up and get dressed. (laughs) You're going And so for me, you know, the planning and the goals are necessary. And if you're a person that's at that stage in your life where you still feel that you're gaining utility from those things, you probably are. So don't try to evolve past those prematurely. And whenever I take up a new discipline, I have to have goals. I have to have a structure because I'm learning something entirely new. Does that answer your question? Like you find direction by losing yourself, I think, in the process. Yeah. I think you told a story when we talked beforehand and also when you were talking about like running and thriving and being present to the journey. But the story I remember that you told was, and, and you kind of said it here of like receiving the gifts that are coming all the time. And it kind of comes back to this idea of privilege that Adam was talking about, that you were talking about, you know, this static idea of privilege. Like almost like, I kind of like want to reframe that word because it kind of like, 
it boxes it all in because that privilege that comes from walking through your day, as you described, receiving the gifts that are all around and kind of receiving everything and all the resources that are there feels like the, a way of walking through life that's magical and very different to kind of the competition and the competing for resources or delineating or kind of separating out, you know, just feels magical. I hope people will get as curious as we did when we started looking up your stuff and like also drawing the lines between our philosophical, mystical conversation that, that talk about endurance in the body and nature. And, you know, if, if they're not philosophical people or spiritual or spiritually oriented people, or if they're not athletes or want to be athletes, that they can see that they're able to kind of mine the depths of what you've been talking about and how it applies to their own life and the outcome orientation and the goal orientation, sort of extrinsic and cultured way that we look at our lives and our, and they hear your invitation to turn back inward, looking to, towards our own, the guidance that we have that is coming from everywhere, that we can receive from everywhere. Miriam, do you have anything else before? Thank you for cutting through the bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you for cutting through the bullshit. Yeah, like, yes, yes, just to have your voice fully here. There's a sense that I have of you not editing yourself and it's it's an inspiration for me. So thank you. It's a place I want to be myself. I try to communicate courageously at all times and nefariously. But for people who aren't that esoteric or we're just kind of like, okay, Raven, now what? What does this all mean? I don't think you all have to go trip balls way deep in the wilderness to to reap the benefits or to even understand or apply what it is that I've been doing. That's the point is that you can be happy with the finger for now. You know, the durability school is online. It's nine courses deep currently. Every course is super rich with evidence and sound and text transcripts and practical guidance, tons of coaching wisdom. And that comes with a monthly Q&A call where I answer folks' individual questions. It's a pretty good bang for your buck. And I have a co-coach and hopefully soon a couple more coaches throughout the world because I can't manage all the time zones sometimes. And my co-coaches usually, you know, they're Emily right now is a certified yoga instructor, certified personal trainer, certified holistic nutrition expert. You know, she's got all the qualifications and she gets into the nitty gritty with folks, builds some training plans, builds some strength training plans, tells them what to eat, tells them how to eat. And so if you're just getting started in a new sport and not wanting to break down, or, you know, one of our specialties is helping amenorrheic athletes start menstruating again without gaining any weight or stopping their training. Those are all interesting places to engage. Um, if you want to do the more esoteric stuff, then you can always sign up for a consult with me. But I will not be your, your guru. I will not be anyone's guru. <laughs> That's, I will keep a distance from that. <laughs> sign me up. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Beyond Listening podcast. For more information on how to adapt to a world of rapid change and flux for yourself, your organization, and your community, visit us at weareopencircle.com.